Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. The Lord be with you. And a happy 5th of July. I forgot to say happy 4th of July, so I'm a day in arrears, but I hope you had a safe 4th. I noticed that fireworks were outlawed, so there were no fireworks yesterday anywhere in town. In town, right outside of town where we live out here, there was all kinds of fireworks yesterday. I'm not sure about the social distancing, but there was a lot of fireworks. You know, it comes to mind that sometimes the smallest thing can tell a very much larger, greater story. Take, for instance, your great-grandmother's hope chest, what you dig into that years later and find. Those stone markers along the highway that tell of Civil War battles that we in an expertly are tuned to drive over just to see what this historic site is about, as if they could capture that in about a two-foot plate. But it leads to something larger. The tiny swab you take when you get a DNA, that tiny swab leads to something much greater. Sometimes the smallest things can tell of much greater stories, stories extending over time, Stories involving many, many people. Consider a well-used silver cup about the size of a chalice. Look in your bulletin. You'll see a silver cup here. You see two silver cups. You actually see one silver cup with two sides. So take a look at that. This silver cup was buried in the home of a once prosperous Roman family. When Mount... Uh, Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. It was so valuable that the family, the unnamed family, buried it in the wine cellar. But it wasn't so valuable that they dug it up and ran out of town with it as they fled for safety. This small cup belonging to an unnamed, unnamed family told of a much larger story. Much larger. It told of a story of gods and humans told of a story of Rome and what it must have been like to live under the rule of Caesar Augustus. On one side of the cup is the image of Augustus, surrounded by gods. He's seated, being handed the world by Venus and winged victory, while Mars, the god of war, brings before him a multitude of conquered nations. On the other side, or the bottom one picture for you in the image, is Augustus, again, ruling over people. Here the image is of mercy, not of war. Augustus is seated. People are coming before him. You notice he extends an open hand out to them, while the other hand holds a spear. The image of the emperor, Caesar Augustus, was very common in Rome. At the time, Paul wrote his letter to the church at Rome. That image was carved into marble. It was printed on coins. It was molded into ceremonial cups like you see here. And like the one found in the Italian villa around Mount Vesuvius. It helped to understand people to understand what it meant to be faithful. Faithfulness was what the word they used to describe the relationship between the conqueror and the conquered. The emperor held both power and mercy. 
In power, he would protect his people. So you see him with a spear in hand. In mercy, he would rule his people. And so you see him reaching out with an open hand. Power and mercy in this one figure, ruling over people. One small actor in a much larger story of the gods. When Paul wrote Romans, he offered up another story of another god, another conqueror, who would rule over people in power and mercy. This god and man was Jesus, the Christ. The small portion we have today before us from the larger letter of Romans, this small portion, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, is well known among Lutherans. It names the struggle between saint and sinner that I spoke of earlier. Simulustus et peccator, at the same time saint and sinner. This struggle is real and hidden in the heart of every person. Some people confess this struggle openly, asking help of others in their relationship of accountability. Other people hide this struggle, try to put on the best face they can and pretend it doesn't exist. All people, however, suffer this struggle. It is not something like a silver cup that one can leave behind or that one could long hide. No, until the day when our conqueror Jesus Christ returns, we will all be involved in the struggle, in the tension of being saint and sinner at the same time. So Paul's letter to the Romans, the Roman church is very pivotal right now. In chapter 7, he has this very personal, individual description that he shares with us. And he tells the story of one man and the struggle, one struggle, that never seems to end. Paul knows the good that God desires, and Paul himself agrees with that desire. He acknowledges that what God wants is indeed good. But then Paul also discovers that he is sold under sin. Note how Paul uses the language of slavery, of captivity. Paul laments that his members wage war and that he's held captive to the law of sin. Verse 23. Paul knows the good that he wants to do, but he is unable to do it. Instead, he finds that what he doesn't want to do, this he keeps on doing. It's frustrating. He's a slave to sin. He's captive to his flesh. And so Paul cries out in this text for deliverance. But Paul's story is not just the story of one man. It's the story of all mankind. It's a story that touches all people. Paul's cry is the same cry of that of Cain, knowing that God wanted him to do good and also knowing that evil was so close at hand that it caused him to kill his brother. It's a story of Joseph's brothers, knowing that the good care and concern that they should have shown their brother was always right next to the evil judgment that caused them to sail Joseph into slavery. It's the same story as David, 
knowing the good rule of the kingdom and the protection of his people that God desired, and yet also knowing the evil pleasures of adultery. And the murder that he could use to cover that up. From individuals to families to nations, this captivity continues. Continue right through the ministry of Jesus. All you have to do is look at Peter. Knowing the good he wanted to do in following Jesus to death, and yet knowing the evil that he did, not denying Jesus once or twice, but three times in the courtyard. It follows right straight through to the times in our own lives today. Paul's one small story, this one small revelation of his own personal private experience is the larger story and experience that you and I know all too well. You and I share that story up close and personal. And we cannot escape it. We cannot hide it. We cannot very deep bury it from God. This, however, is not the only story Paul wants to tell you. In fact, there's a much greater story here, the story of God that Paul wants to highlight to all people. This story of God is a story of faithfulness too. Not our faithfulness to God, but God's faithfulness to his promises and to his people. As early as the fall in the Garden of Eden, God had begun telling us this story of his love. Adam and Eve, as they stood there naked before God, ashamed of themselves but unable to hide from God, God begins to speak of his love. They overhear it in a conversation God has with a snake. You'll remember this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel Genesis 3, and right there in the first book of the Bible is the very first biblical prophecy. Here was the first glimpse of God's promise, the greater story of God. He would send one, an offspring, of a woman who would bruise the head of Satan and conquer men and fight. Adam and Eve then could live in hope. It was not all in vain. The individuals, the families, and the nations that followed them might live in hope that this story of God would one day come true. This greater story. And Paul's letter proclaims to everyone who hears it that it indeed came true in Jesus Christ. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He cries out, and in the next breath he answers it. Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, the answerer, the deliverer. In this section of the letter, Paul lets this one small story of his own become part of a larger story, the story of Jesus, Christ our Lord. He is the one who came to be our deliverer. What did we do? We delivered him up to death as Satan worked with us to bruise his heel. And how did that work out? Jesus delivered us from death and from the kingdom of Satan as he revealed his power 
and his resurrection and called us into his kingdom, the kingdom of God. This God, unlike Caesar, this God loves you. This God died for you. This God rise, rose to give life, new life to you. Paul proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord. And with those words, he invites you into God's greater story. The story of Jesus Christ, the one who rules, the one who is greater than Caesar and Caesar's gods. He himself is God. He has come as our deliverer. He is at the heart of God's greater story of the rescue of his people from slavery and redemption of all people in the world. It's a beautiful story. Someone should do a painting about it, maybe. Someone should have written and made, done a painting, to a picture about that. Well, someone did. Right here. An artist captured this rule, Jesus' rule, the rule of Christ over the earth. The painting is called Christ and the Four Evangelists. It depicts Jesus as Salvatore Mundi, the savior of the world. In 1516, Frau Bartolomeo was asked to paint that particular painting for a piece in a chapel, a church. In it, Christ is not depicted engraved on either side of a chalice, is he? With one side telling the story of the gods and the other side telling the story of humans. Rather, look closely. He stands on top of the chalice. Both God and man, ruling over the world. His one arm holds a scepter with the globe at the top. He truly holds all power, rules all over creation. His other hand, however, is raised in blessing. Through his death and resurrection, he has accomplished salvation for all people. And now he rules over all things in love and offers his blessing to the world. For some people today, though, the image lost, has lost its intimacy, like this cup, a silver cup that we had earlier of Augustus. You see, Augustus there is seated among his people. He's got his hand out in mercy to individuals. Here, Christ is above the people. Even the evangelists appear small when you compare it to him and his greater, larger figure. And his hand is raised in blessing. It's not extended to one individual person in mercy. Ah, but look closely. Look in the image, and you can see how Christ has chosen to rule through the people. The men who surround him are the evangelists who have written his message, and they now, it's still being read in the world today. We just read Matthew. Notice they each hold their books, their gospels. The men in the back are looking at Jesus, while the two in the front are engaging with the world. Matthew looks up at Jesus. Mark points his finger towards Jesus while he's talking with John. Luke stares out over the people who are gathered, and John points his finger downward where you see two angels holding a disc. 
below that chalice. In that disc is just one place, one single place in a much larger world. When this picture was placed in the altar of the chapel of that church, amazing things happened. The priest facing the altar would lead the worshiping community in communion. At this celebration of the Lord's Supper, the priest would consecrate the host. He would raise the host above his head, and there it would appear in that one small window on the world upheld by angels. That body of Christ is where God's people meet Jesus. Yes, he has ascended into heaven. His left hand holds the scepter. He has all the power and rules over the world. His right hand is raised in blessing over all. Yet this same Jesus that you look in that picture at is still among his people today. He's present with you. He is intimate and near. As he comes in his body and his blood, the chalice and the host, to be your deliverer, your Savior. He comes here today. That's the message the evangelists proclaim. And they want you to hear it. They want you to have eyes to see this much larger story. Listen today again to the words of Matthew. Hear it in our gospel reading. And Jesus wants you to see it and to come to him. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and that you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here, in a very tangible way, Jesus brings you once again to the heart of this greater story of God. As we gather in a few moments for the Lord's Supper, we are connected to the much larger story of God's loving rule over his world. This is the story of Jesus, our deliverer, now come among us. The one who rules the world has lifted his hand in eternal blessing as we now come to receive his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, so we, we come here with our smaller private stories. Those moments when the good we wanted to do, we did not do. Those same moments of the things we didn't want to do that we just somehow kept on doing. <laughs> that struggle, my friends, is still here. It's real. It's why you come here today confessing your sin. But you also come here today trusting in your deliverance because Jesus alone is faithful. Jesus alone is faithful and remembers his promises. Take, eat, take, drink. This is my body. This is my blood. 
given for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's our Lord who rules. That's our Jesus who is the deliverer. In his hand is power and blessing. And here this day, we find mercy in his body and his blood given and shed for us. At the Lord's Supper, we are joined to this much larger story, the story of God saving the world through Jesus. As we lift the cup of salvation to the Lord, his power, his blessings, his mercy extends to you as he continues to rule and will rule until the end of the world. Amen.